0: Radio Land Podcast, Bill, and all the ships at sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the Larb Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate, managing editor of Larb. Hi, hey, Medea. How's
1: it going? Pretty good. I'm excited to talk to Jess Arndt. That's right. Jess is the author of Large Animals, it's a great collection of short stories that just was published. Now she's a local author, too. She recently moved to Los Angeles, and we were lucky enough to have her in the studio. Yeah. All right. Let's listen. It was a really great collection. Let's do it.
0: Today, we're speaking with Jess Arndt. Jess Arndt received her MFA at the Milton Avery Graduate School of the Arts at Bard College and was a 2013 Gray Wolf SLS Fellow, and a 2010 Fiction Fellow at the New York Foundation of the Arts. Her writing has appeared in publications such as Fence, Bomb, Parquet, and Night Papers, and in her manifesto for the Knife's Shaking the Habitual World Tour. She is the co-founder of New Herring Press, dedicated to publishing prose and polemics, and she lives and works in Los Angeles. Her new book of stories, Large Animals, was published last month by Catapult. Thanks so much for being here, Jess. Thank you. We were thinking we'd start by having you read a little from the collection.
2: Great. I'd like to read a little from the end of the collection, a story called Large Animals. In my sleep, I was plagued by large animals. Teams of grizzlies, timber wolves, gorillas even, came in and out of the mist. Once, the now extinct northern white rhino also stopped by. But none of them came as often or with such a ferocious sexual charge as what I, mangling Latin and English as usual, called the wall rye. Lying there, I faced them, as you would the inevitable. They were massive, tube-shaped. Sometimes the feeling was only flesh, and I couldn't see the top of the cylinder that masqueraded as head or tusks or eyes. Nonetheless, I knew I was in their presence intuitively. There was no mistaking their skin. Their smell was unmistakable, too, as was their awful weight. During these nights— The days seemed to disappear before they even started. I was living two miles from a military testing site. In the early morning and throughout the day, the soft, dense sound of bombs filled the valley. It was comforting somehow. Otherwise, I was entirely alone. This seemed a precondition for the wal rye that I should be theirs and theirs only. On the rare occasion that I had an overnight visitor to my desert bungalow, the wal Rye were never around. Then the bears would return in force, maybe even a large local animal like a mountain lion or goat. But no form's density came close to walrusness, so I became wary and stopped inviting anyone out to visit at all. So maybe
1: can you tell us a little bit about how this collection came together?
2: Sure. This collection came together through sort of sheer force of will, (laughs) I think. (laughs) It's my first book, and the form of the stories has meant that up until now they haven't always found an easy home in publishing so i've been making them and kind of holding them and hoping that they might somehow go together and sort of trying to convince the world that they also might sit together somehow and i was sort of beating my head against the wall saying like to my friends or my people i write with like you know how can this possibly happen and, and they understand publishing is really hard as you guys know and the kind of beautiful thing was the press that's taking the book on is catapult, and it's a brand new press. And so it was almost as if like the press that was going to be the press that could be the vehicle for these stories just didn't exist.
0: Right. And how do you, when you were having to describe them to people, I'm curious how you would describe them or sum them up because they seem so, <laughs> they're really out there and
2: it seems hey, that's hard. That's probably the hardest question you can ask. Sorry. <laughs> Oops, right away. I think I would often sort of bumble around but say that they were told by narrators who looked and sounded a lot like me that they were really about like the body as a container and... Uncomfortable that can be, and how misfitting, and sort of bungling around in it and outside of it, but also that often some kind of sideways energy might come in, whether it's dream energy or another kind of influence that usually hit them a little sideways of being like straight on realism.
0: Reading them, I they're so embodied, like that. that That's it, funny, yeah. It really feels <laughs> like that, like it's so much from the point of view of the narrator, but not even a point of view as much as a They're really visceral, and I wondered, in terms of writing them, what your process was.
2: Sure. I find writing fresh work excruciating, and I think I'm not alone. Like a lot of writers probably, a lot of people sit here and say that, but it's really terrifying to me. I don't like to do it. I'm much more comfortable editing, and I think that's often because then you have this kind of like weird, awkward body that's like the start of a story, and you can kind of compress it and shape it and mold it almost like maybe like a sculptor would in 3D. You read in the bio that I went to Bard for my MFA, which is like largely an art school. And what was really exciting for me about being there was that I was mostly in conversation with painters and photographers and sculptors and people who are working in a visual form. Also like sound people. So that kind of feeling of like trying to shape something like with a lot of compression and force against it, being uncomfortable sitting there and those two things meeting, I think kind of would wrench things into shape a little bit. I mean, it was a very sweaty process.
1: <laughs> yeah, you really can feel that in the reading. You can. Do you think of, when you approach a text, or when you begin writing, do you think of it as a kind of object? Because you're talking about shaping it, squeezing it together. It sounds very much like text itself I think is I
2: very much want language to not be something that is only used for describing. Mm-hmm. And describing feels like a 2D act to me. And... So I guess until you said that I haven't exactly thought of it as an object, but there's like resonance when you say it, because I think that my hope is that the language can be the thing that it's in service of, you know, and I guess that is a kind of like 3D world that I'm trying to work through.
0: Yeah, because the stories are beautifully told in kind of striking language. And sometimes a lot of things happen in them, like the first story follows these people around a casino and they give a big win and there's a made me very anxious.
2: (laughs) I was like, no, don't gamble away that money. Don't do that. It's inevitable. (laughs) There's a hookup in a hotel (laughs) room
0: and then there's a storm coming. But it still is so much from this somehow it's very from inside the perspective of the person telling the story as opposed to from the outside.
2: It's funny, like you said, like a lot of stuff going on and I just got to go to New York for really briefly to have a little bit of a release for this book. And I asked Amy Stillman, who is like a mentor and like painter, just one of my hero painters, if I could use one of her drawings for the cover. And she said yes. And I love talking with her about writing because she's so smart about it. And so I asked her to have a conversation with me. And in the course of that conversation, a fight like sort of erupted or like a really serious like debate between Amy and Lynn Tillman about plot and how plot works. And because I had sort of said I don't care about plot. And we don't have to get into the particulars of the fight, but mm, just to I'm say, interested. like, Me it too. is, <laughs> but just to say that, like, there is a lot of stuff happening in the stories. It doesn't mean necessarily that plot's super important. I do think that I love language. And often the way that the stories start is from a place of just sort of language play or language curiosity. Like, if we go into the collection, like, the second to last story beside myself. The genesis of it was me saying like what a funny expression and like how weird if you were actually like beside oneself like if you had another self that was beside you and I started to kind of play out that idea with no idea like where the story would go or no need for it to go anywhere in particular just like a hope that maybe something would start to happen on paper because of that desperation about trying to write but anyway so there is like a love of language even though there's a hope that language could be something else.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense, because... That
2: was a very wandering answer. No, no.
1: I'm totally with you on that one. And I I want to follow up on what Lynn and Amy were fighting about, because I'm curious. (laughs) Um, I'm curious, too. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) well, because it seems like part of the thing that is happening in your book is very much that this tension between, well, animals, right? The thing that is often said is separating animals from humans is language, right? Though animals... Very much do have their own language. And there also seems to be this push and pull between something being there and not being there and wanting something to be there and not wanting something to be there. And that this feeling of like, what is the nature of embodiment? And when we are beside ourselves, and when we see ourselves as not ourselves... So it seems like there is a real there's tension. There's a there. real
2: squirmy feeling in a lot of the stories. Like in another story, Ben Storm, the narrator, who's like very similar to the other narrators, is having an uncomfortable body experience in like a sort of gas station, road stop store that they've stopped at, and thinks back to having recently been at the beach and being standing in the water and trying to keep their head above water and standing on a sandbar and that the ground under them is kind of not constant. And I think that that thing that you're pointing out, that like embodiment is like in these stories or like the hope for desire towards embodiment, but it's not something that can always be counted on.
0: Yeah, well, I was going to say that I think gender is something in the stories that comes up a lot, but it's treated with some ambivalence. The story that I thought has just the most knockout ending third arm and the character's like, masturbating in a car and kind of imagining that it's a <laughs> penis. And then they're saying, you know, but you should know about this penis. Like, I made it. And I'm assuming they mean with their mind. Yeah, and like, exactly. Believe me, like, I'm not dumb enough to care about I it that about much. It. Yeah, yeah, and I thought that was such a interesting thing to insert. And then it also just, so the kind of, and I think that the, a lot of the collection does kind of have a, it goes back and forth between I mean the a transition is mentioned in the collection maybe Throughout, a couple of yeah. times. Yeah, but it's never it's almost like a background note. So I was interested if that was something you thought, oh I really want to write about this, or that just came out naturally, if you were wary of writing about it or any pitfalls of writing about it. I think topic. I'm like
2: very wary of resolution, of like I'm going from this place to this place, whatever those places might be. But at the same time, I think that I realized in writing these stories that if I was going to write, the only way that I could write was to find out something that, like, I was sort of scared to look at on the page to have that experience with the reader. And so they became, like, in some ways very navel-gazing, like, opening the self up, kind of, like, lurchy, sort of gross-feeling stories to write. And that meant, like, writing through and into gender. But I wouldn't say that there are stories necessarily about gender identity in a way that you could fix it. Right. And I hope that they don't, because I really think that the experience can be, like, so much more multiple than that. And that we all, like, whatever our gender identities might be, like, experience, like, a kind of squirminess and, uh, like, do I have to be this shape? Am I this? That we don't have a lot of space to describe.
1: You told us that before the show that you recently had a baby. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, congratulations Thank again. Thank you. Is there a way in which having a child has affected your under? I mean, very new child, eight weeks, has affected your understanding of this issue that obviously you've been of thinking the, about of gender
2: or, the or of s- bodies
1: of bodies and a feeling as if it's not a thing. Where here it is, we're done. It's fixed.
2: Yeah, but so wild that a body grows in another body. And yeah. it has been like largely something that me and my partner have been absorbed with and in for the last couple of years around like being two queer bodies trying to make a baby together or ask for a baby to come to us and to see that process in its many shapes. I mean, it even found its way into some of the work in this book as well. So I was at a different point with it and didn't know that we would have a baby when I was writing the book. So... I think that it's, like, hard to speak from this point, like, what I've really learned about it because yeah, I'm so, so deeply <laughs> immersed in, like, the, is he pooping? Like, like <laughs> right. wow, I just took off a diaper and he squirted me. Like, oh, my God, look at that beautiful oh, body. I mean, I know I can say, like, that there are times when I thought, like, well, you better get good at figuring out how to be in your body because you are going to, like, help steward this other body. And for me, that's especially, like, complex, I think, because... I have like really in many ways been very envious of a male body and so now I have this like really beautiful very young tiny son and I like want everything for him and I also want to know how to have my body alongside his and not be jealous of it or be you know any number of kind of complicated human emotions that can come up when you think like how do I be my best self so I can help this other self. You're listening to
0: the Larb Radio Hour. Coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood.
1: And now for this week's book recommendation. We have Kate here in the studio today. Kate is my usual (laughs) co host of this show, so it's not unusual to have her in the studio with me. Kate is a former senior editor at LARB, and she's now editor at large. And she's here to give us a book recommendation. Kate, what book are you going to recommend?
0: I would like to recommend Proxies, Essays Near Knowing, which is a book by Brian Blanchfield, which came out about a year ago, maybe a little under that. I read this book right when it came out. I remember being really excited to read it because I was familiar with Brian Blanchfield. He taught at Arts while I was there, where I went, but I didn't know that much about him. Mm -hmm. And I just like essay collections. And so this is a collection of essays that Brian Blanchfield wrote. I think they're without outside sources, so they're all from his mind. Oh, interesting. And so I think it's called a reckoning, and I think it's kind of like a reckoning with what he's learned at this point of oh. his life. Which I kind of I always thought of the title, the Lena Dunham book that came out last year, where someone's like, "Where the tagline it says like, "A girl tells you what she's learned." But I'm not recommending that book. I'm recommending <laughs> right. Brian's book. So. Although they're very erudite and have tons of interesting information, they move probably in a different way than essays that would have been deeply researched. Brian is a poet. I believe this is his first published book of prose. So, of course, there's a, a beautiful detail to language, and the topics are really various. One of the ones that particularly captivated me because I've always wanted to write about this, is an essay on house guests. Oh, where he writes a bit about James Schuyler who's, you know, the ultimate house guest, and his relationship with Fairfield Porter, the painter, who he lived with on and off for many years. But then, you know, it also goes into Brian's own personal experience and staying at someone's house in Tucson and being found, like the kind of awkward, lots of the awkward interactions that house guests and the hosts have. So Sounds it's really good. It's really good. It's one of these things that if you've ever been a house guest, when you read the essay, of course you'll relate. But then it's just put in such a wider context, and of course, just the writing throughout is very beautiful. And there's also a lot of very frank discussion of kind of academic pecking order and being in academia as mm-hmm. a poet and the difficulties of it. And sure, there are plenty. Yes, I wouldn't know, but so it was just a great book. I lent it to someone shortly after I finished it because I was telling everyone how great it was. But now I regret that because, of course, I haven't gotten it back and I'd like to read it again.
1: Oh, I'm so sorry to hear. That is why I have a strict policy of never lending anybody books. Yeah. That is actually real. I think I have to start doing that. You have to. And then it's not personal. Right. It doesn't have to do with the person it just has to do with but your actually, actual strict I've gotten, policy. I've gotten a lots of my best books from, you Well, know, you probably should quit doing <laughs> that. So. Okay, so this was a recommendation for
0: Proxies, Essays Near Knowing by Brian
1: Blanchfield. Okay, thank you so much, Kate. You're welcome.
0: You're listening to Larb Radio Hour. Now back to our conversation with Jess Arnold. Her new book is Large Animals. Of the stories, I did think that it was, un- like, that there wasn't necessarily a story where I thought, okay, well, I can tell this is about, this story in particular is about, like, a man or a woman. Although, cool. one- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe one or two, there were, like, better clues, but exactly, yeah. it was Um, ambiguous, but um, one story where I wondered about it, or I think it's kind of, it is a bit of a plot point, speaking of plot, is Together, (laughs) Mm -hmm. where it's a story about a couple and... I thought it was a parasite. Yeah. Okay, a parasite. Yeah. But there's also kind of references in STD, in a way, or that's alluded to with the bowl of condoms. that. Well, there's something that's, like,
2: coming, that's, like, worming its way in between their relationship to each other. Right. And, like, it is insidious and is, like, under the surface. And in that way, I think, yeah, like, there's a question of, like, fidelity in this story.
0: You could describe that story a little bit.
2: Sure. It is, like, in some ways a more plotted story, I guess, like, if whatever that could mean. It's set in a a relationship that's devolving and has already started devolving, and we don't see why exactly. Except that the narrator who we're with seems to have, like, a pretty serious, like, lack of trust of themselves. And that's almost kind of their problem. You know, not anything particular that's happened or hasn't happened, but, like, a sense of, like, that their borders are sort of diffuse and— that the more diffuse that their borders are, the more that they're aware that like their partner seems kind of like immaculate and well put together, and it's giving them this vertigo. At the same time, they've been told that they have a parasite, and so they're trying to solve that like the way you're supposed to solve having a parasite by these pills. And the narrator um, starts to realize that the pills like will solve the problem, which will then erase the connection that they're sharing, which is having a shared thing together, <laughs> a shared parasite. <laughs> a shared yeah. parasite.
0: But there's, and there's, also, I mean, there's a, it's a long there's okay. story. It okay, is no, uh, uh, a long story. And can, there's also some infidelity in the story. Seems like possibly Seems like, yeah.
2: alluded to. Yeah, perhaps. totally. Okay. It's, but it's like it's sort of like hazy. I mean yeah. it's it's almost worse that it's maybe not there but wished for right. or confessed to even if it didn't happen. Right. Because right. it's like the the narrator is sort of involved in a series of self sabotages, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the parasite also talks, I mean.
1: <laughs> I loved I loved it when the parasite talked. Of course. Yeah. I wanted the parasite to talk more. Yeah. Um, I thought that was an interesting story also because it was a good example of how I mean now that we're talking about plot, it sort of occurs to me that embodiment can be a plot or it can be a plot in and of itself. So, um, something that it seems like your book is maybe like Claudia Rankin's Citizen, where mm. embodiment, yeah. the process of making experiences as part of the body and living with it. And as you said, a container, she calls it a cupboard, I think. Like oh, yeah. This, this cupboard in which you keep these experiences.
2: Well, um, there's also maybe yeah. something that it could be said to share, it's not too much to say, is that like there's a, a feeling in some of the stories of an external thing being pressed up against and defining the body and the body trying to adjust itself to see whether it could fit that and also resist that thing that's being pressed at it from the outside.
0: Yeah, and no, I... Thought something else in the book that seems like also in the background, but speaking of point of view or embodiment is alcohol and drugs. Mm-hmm. And actually, it was thinking—I just occurred to me uh, later, just today, that this that some stories kind of do remind me a little bit about of that John Cheever story, the swimmer, where he's swimming. You know, he's swimming in the backyards of people's houses, and it's yeah. never never said exactly that he's wasted but yeah and then he goes and his house isn't there anymore however it ends i forget but that they have this kind of surreal edge but that a lot of that actually is could just be of someone being pretty drunk right um (laughs) but and it's but it's never it's just handled so seamlessly and and uh i like how you talk about people drinking or drinking seems like a lot of these stories share that but it's not you don't make it a point to exploit it or anything um, hopefully <laughs> yeah. but so Thank I you. wondered um so th- is that something again is that was that a conscious decision or is that just was that something you wanted to write about or that's just kind of part of
2: I mean you know in terms of like life exposure I've been a bartender for 20 years and so I've spent a lot of time in that kind of nebulous in-between state both with myself and with other people where you're you're like it's 2 it's 3 in the morning what are we doing we're right. blurry with each other and we're blurry in the space and how did we get suspended here and how long will we be here and it could be forever <laughs> right there's some of it is just sort of like it when you're soaked in something, I don't mean like soaked in booze, but like soaked in kind of the experience of like watching that thing. It comes into the writing, I think. But it, it's not like it's a metaphor. It's really literal, but it's like it is a space to describe a feeling of looking to be more into something. And then that actually puts you further out of something. Sometimes I think in the body, like that, that maybe the characters are hoping to feel like absorbed or absolved in it. And it actually closes them off.
1: Right. Has being a bartender affected your work in other ways?
2: Well, people always say, like, oh, my God, you must have so many good stories. Yeah. And I sort of feel like, oh, my God, if I hear that same one story like yeah. another 75 times. <laughs> so I've, like, peeled myself back from kind of the more regular shift bartending. And now I do, like, really strange, like, events bartending that gets mm-hmm. me there at 5 in the morning and stuff like that. Um, but I think it's, all like, with jobs, with writing, it's always, like, how do you make money? And so there's like, do you teach, and that's like looks much more similar to like your intellectual practice in your studio, or do you like do something that's totally different? So then you have time, and none of them seem very perfect. Yeah, <laughs> I think I'm realizing that I'm I'm feeling more and more aware of being like so much uh, pulled by people in a workspace where somebody is like kind of asking you, wanting something from you, and and it's it's harder on the writing, I think.
1: Right, and it seems like work that can be emotionally pretty exhausting yeah if if there are people who at three a m need you,
2: yeah, I mean now I have a little baby, and I just don't want you to don't do care. it anymore, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know, but there there are beautiful things about it, and some of my my like most important experiences have come through that be, allowing myself to be in that strange space, yeah. and like for whatever reason I've searched sought it out, I have you know. Yeah.
0: And it also seems like it gives not that it's uh, engineered in the stories themselves, but that that the kind of dream-like state, you know, that it's not as it's it's realistic in a way. If you're really comparing it to what happens to people when they drink, and there are lots of times, or there are a few times where it seems like people kind of black out, or there's these ellipses, and then something, you know, yeah, and yeah. then really, and that wouldn't be that far off if it was really just tracking someone.
2: Totally. <laughs> you drink too much. It's
0: pretty realistic. So, um, I wondered how long did it take you to put this collection together? You're saying in the beginning that it took a while. but I
2: mean, it's so so hard to say in a way. Like, I hoped for a book for so long. And there were, like, other books that came before in that way that didn't. But something dredged from them into this. Like, just talking about drinking in that kind of really strange state that you can... Be in or around. I, I wrote a book before this that was like a novella set in San Francisco in the 1850s. That was like about this like really like kind of intensely researched piece, like thinking about the practice of Shanghaiing um, sailors, where like you would go into the wrong bar, talk to the wrong person, be handed the wrong drink. It'd be full of. Um, what they would call like knockout drops, you would get doped. There'd be a a trap door um, underneath the bar. You'd be dropped down into it and resold back to a ship captain and you'd sort of be an indentured sailor around the world and working off like your fare. So I love, like that was a book that was like very dear to me and then it turned into a very small story in the collection, which is Shadow of an Ape. So I had to kind of write this longer book and then pull that thing from it. So in a way it still feels part of this book. So that could be like ten years, or it could be like four years. <laughs> right, right,
0: right.
1: <laughs> you have an anchor tattoo, actually, that I just noticed. Is there? Do you have um, a close relationship with sailing or the water?
2: I I love sailing. Like I'm not a sailor, but I love mm-hmm. um, it as an idea. And um, my family lives on a very small island, and so I'm in the northwest, and so I'm around water that way. But um, I also have. Like astrologer friends who tell me I have a Pisces um, south node, which is like a very watery thing. Hmm. And that's probably where some of like the drinking and the checkout and the dream space and the sort of am I a body or am I not a body can come from too in the work.
0: And were there models for you as you write? I know that's kind of can be an annoying question, but did you such a singular, you have such a singular style, but were you looking to a lot of other people to help you along the way or?
2: I guess could answer that in two ways. Totally. Number one, I just I feel so affected by the fact that Dennis Johnson passed away this week. Yeah, as I'm sure that we all do. So he was like a huge like lighthouse for me, and the more that I think about him, the more I realize just how impacted I was by the way that he made sentences and dealt with meaning and dealt with the self. So that is incredibly sad. But also, it's really interesting I think to try to assemble like a, a lineage when. The writers who I would, like, be kind of pointing towards have themselves, like, been um, largely minority position writers who have struggled so much themselves to, like, find somebody to publish them. Like, brilliant people like Lynn Tillman or Eileen Miles or, like, any number of Maggie Nelson or other people like that who have worked so hard for what they have. And in that way, there isn't always, like, a lot of room to, like, say, like, I have so much here, here's some help or something like that because everybody's working so hard to, like just make a little bit of space for themselves. And not in an unkind way, like in an incredibly kind way, but just like I think it's like interesting to be part of a lineage where publishing is tough, you know, you guys know it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Does it seem like the publishing world has been more welcoming now that the book is in the world?
2: It's almost like um, somebody had to back it and then it was Mm -hmm. like okay to think like, oh, like maybe I could like this. Not that (laughs) everyone likes it or something, you know, but just like it... It was like such a like odd sore thumb when I was like dragging it around, like saying like, What do you think? And people were, like, I don't really understand how oh, this could be a book. And also I had, you know, like a really amazing editor, Julie Bunton, who, um I catapult like really helped me a lot, I think, um, figure out how to shape it a little bit. But it does feel like that thing where like you fake it till you make it and then like someone says like, Oh, they they said it's okay, well then it's okay.
0: <laughs> right. right. And then are you working on I know you just had a kid, so
2: yeah I'm pretty much sure
0: <laughs> <laughs> might not be uh hidden the desk too hard right I, yeah, now, but, I went, yeah
2: i went i was saying before we started talking um on the mics that I went to the Arctic in November um on a, a sailing boat, and that was oh, really cool. exciting to be like on a boat in that way um and there's I'd really like love to write it something from that experience, mm-hmm. some rubbing of that.
0: We'll look forward to that. Thanks. Thanks, Jess, so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Great talking with you. It's
2: really great talking with you guys.
0: We've been speaking with Jess Arndt, and her new book is Large Animals, out now from Catapult. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Our executive producers are Medea Ocher and Kate Wolf. Editorial advisor is Janice Rochelle Littlejohn, our engineer is Ernesto Orleano, our researcher is Chloe Chapp, production volunteer is Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful studios. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books.